Hello and welcome to the Spooky Shelf Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Ducaro. In this podcast, we explore the horror movies which make up my guest's perfect DVD shelf. With all the streaming services available to us, I wanted to give my guests the opportunity to curate their ultimate horror DVD shelf with 13 titles which stand out to them as the best the genre has to offer. When I started Spooky Shelf, I wrote down a list of names of dream guests who I'd love to come on and have a go at building their very own Spooky Shelves, and Mike Munzer's name was at the top of that list. Mike runs the Evolution of Horror podcast and is a big inspiration as to why the Spooky Shelf podcast exists. I loved sitting down and having a chat with him, and you're going to love this one too. He's a delightful human being. Remember to subscribe to the Spooky Shelf podcast so you can keep up to date with more guests from the online horror community. We've got some even more incredible guests coming up, so you really do want to keep listening. So, without further ado, let's go and put up a Spooky Shelf with Mike Munzer. Hello and welcome to the Spooky Shelf podcast. I am your host, Joe Ducaro, and in this podcast, we explore the horror movies which make up my guest's perfect DVD shelf. With all the streaming services available to us, I wanted to give my guests the opportunity to curate their ultimate horror DVD shelf with 13 titles which stand out to them as the best the genre has to offer. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, then you absolutely listen to the evolution of horror. And without today's guest, this podcast probably wouldn't exist at all. So please welcome the host of Evolution of Horror. It's Mike Munzer. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to come and uh, build your very own spooky shelf. I'm very excited. You know, if there's one thing that people love doing, this is what I've learned from my podcast, is that people love coming onto other podcasts as guests and talking about themselves and their taste in films, right? So I love being on the other end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I've got to ask, Mike, how are you with uh, flat pack furniture? Are you a fan of putting things up like shelves? Are you a bit of a DIY head or not? So I am so terrible at DIY. And so I got married this year and it even came up in the Father of the Bride speech. My father-in-law actually brought up that the only thing that was wrong with me was that I am terrible at DIY so yeah like uh, well, I'm bad I'm, I'm happy to say that we have that in common because my father-in-law said exactly the same thing about me in his wedding speech so. <laughs> there we go snap I love it yeah. so what we've learned is horror fans not so handy with tools that might be used to murder people with. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> That's probably encouraging, I suppose. So, <laughs> okay, uh, Mike, let's get into it. Let's start building your spooky shelf. Uh, the first DVD I'm going to ask... Sorry, I will just clarify. Uh, what format would you like your films to take the form of? Do you want Blu-ray, Laserdisc, VHS... Betamax. Oh, I love this. I love the I love the idea of Laserdisc. I but I will say, I'll 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 be basic and I'll say Blu-ray because Blu-ray's the best, right? I d- this is the thing, right? I I sort of I asked that with a bit of tongue in cheek because I think everyone's answer should probably be <laughs> probably Blu-ray. should be. Although, but you know, there is this like VHS fetish, right? That is like really sort of becoming a thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if you get some people that go, "Oh yeah, VHS, yeah, lovely." <laughs> I think for certain things it would lend itself, like Ringu on VHS, that probably lends itself quite well, but mm-hmm, I imagine mm-hmm. watching watching Host on VHS probably doesn't hit in the same way. No, very good um, point. We did have, when uh, when um, Becky Dark came on to record her episode, one of her Blu-rays was actually in the form of David Warner's detruncated head, <laughs> and to get the disc out, you just his little nose and he spat the disc out. perfect so if you want any sort of special features like that mike i can make that happen so i love that go, i love that amazing blu-rays okay so your first disc i'm going to ask you for then 
asked, what was the very first horror film you ever saw, Mike Munzer? Well, probably anyone that listens to me on my podcast will know this, but my first proper horror experience was Scream. Uh, Where's Craven's Scream from 1996. It was sort of uh, the film that made me fall in love with horror um it was uh, rented by i've got older siblings and they sort of rented it from our video store in the mid 90s i would have been about nine years old i think and uh, i watched it and completely even at the age of nine thought it was the best experience i'd ever had watching a film i thought it was terrifying and exciting and fun and hilarious and and uh, and I think because of the nature of that film as well and the fact that they talk about horror films so much and they bring up other titles, it just kind of gave me this list of other movies that I wanted to discover and I was kind of completely obsessed from that point onwards. So, yeah, Scream is entirely responsible. It, it's come up a few times. Like, I mean, I've, yeah, I've recorded a, a few of these episodes now and Scream, I think, pretty much consistently has come up pretty much every single time. Mm. Um, I mean... <sighs> To, I made this point with Becky, but to reinvent a genre once is something that I guess filmmakers dream of, you know. But to do it, how many times did Wes Craven do it? To be able to, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But I, I reckon we might talk more about Wes Craven as this goes on. But yeah, he's a, he's a genius, and <laughs> and yeah, he he, he reinvented horror three times uh, in the seventies with Lost House on the Left, and the eighties with The Nightmare on Elm Street, and then the nineties with Scream, and you know not to mention various other bangers in between but yeah like he he was a genius i think and i think he was so good at particularly tapping into what a particular generation of people were scared of at that given at any given moment you know um and you know scream is really fun it's really meta but it's also about the effect that horror movies have on kids and there is a lot of kind of really smart satire about the effects that movies have on us and that horror movies have on us you know um something that he dabbled with in Wes Craven's new nightmare and then kind of did even better I think with Scream so yeah what a movie so then have so you say you were nine years roughly sort of nine years old pre pre 10 years old when you first watched Scream then yeah were you able to spot some of the the more comedic moments of it or was it all just sheer terror for you because I, it sounds like a very strange parallel to bring up but with the Adam West Batman movie I was genuinely concerned that he could not get rid of that bomb <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um I think I I I my journey was incredibly terrified in that first 10 minutes like oh my god am I actually going to be able to cope with watching all of this uh to then kind of sinking into the tone of it and I remember moments that I found genuinely funny even in that first watch the moment when Randy is lying on the sofa watching Halloween and he's saying behind you behind you and the killer is coming up behind him I think even as a nine-year-old I was able Mm. to get that really smart meta commentary that it was doing you know and the genius of Scream is you, you don't even have to have seen all the films obviously you appreciate it on a different level once you've then seen all these movies that it references but even without any knowledge i had no knowledge it it still worked perfectly as Mm. just such a brilliant fun scary movie you know it i i'm yeah sort of perfect kind of like sleepover movie watching yeah totally i think i i scarred all of my fellow nine and ten year old friends from that point onwards by by what making them watch it at at any given sleepover so yeah (laughs) fantastic okie dokie then mike so scream on blu-ray uh is the first film on your shelf we're going to move into your second pick now 
this is probably my second favourite question. Um, which film scared you the most? Yeah, so this is another movie I'd probably consider one of my favourites. And, and after discovering Scream and falling in love with horror, I kind of I kind of branched out and started watching other horror movies. And I loved them all, but I didn't find any of them particularly scary until I saw this film, which was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, because that was the first time ever that I was so scared that I had to actually switch the film off. Like, it was too much for me. Um, Mm. And there is something so unbelievably, incomprehensively powerful about The Shining. Like, to this day, I don't know why it is so scary. There is something magic in that film where it hits you on such a kind of unconscious level uh, you know the 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 corridors, the empty spaces, the carpet patterns, the wallpaper. These are things that should not be scary, but somehow Stanley Kubrick makes them so scary. And it wasn't even the moments you know that you might expect. You know the 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 you know crazed Jack Nicholson trying to kill his wife and kids with an axe. Like it wasn't even that stuff. It's all the early stuff when Danny is just seeing people. You know he he sees those two little girls in that corridor when he's riding his little big wheel around the corridors. It's it was those moments that I just, I could not handle. I was probably mm. a little bit older, but still very young. I was probably about 12 or 13 when I watched it. And yeah, couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. And I think it got to the scene where he got to room 237 and you saw the woman in the bathtub and I that was it for me. It was off. <laughs> it was off. And I think I had to throw on an episode of The Simpsons or something to calm myself down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oh, so bad is your fortune that you throw it on. And, oh no, it's the shinning. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah can you imagine that would have been really unlucky <laughs> <laughs> there's um there is uh, uh, perhaps this is just just me um projecting on my what i feel about the shining but i feel personally i completely misremember and misjudge the shining because it appears so frequently in like the top 10 lists of oh what's you know you google the scariest film of all time shining is consistently up there with you know a few others and there's something about it being that almost populist that I'm like, I'm not sure that it is actually that scary. But when you go back, there, there, and a key thing that I always find myself rediscovering when I watch The Shining mm-hmm. again, it's so unsettling. It completely gets under your skin. And you've touched on it there, the sort of the mystery behind We don't fully understand why it's so scary like you say these mundane quotidian things it's carpets it's corridors they shouldn't be scary but they absolutely do really freak us out I, I, it's there's, there was it's almost as if there was something magic captured yeah as they were making that film there is there is something in <laughs> the celluloid almost in this film like there is a there is a quality about it that is just you cannot explain and i get that this movie doesn't work for everyone and i think some people do find it a bit too slow and boring and and it you know, I, I think I'm a huge fan of David Lynch, um, and this has an element of David Lynch to it. Stanley Kubrick famously kind of made his cast watch Eraserhead uh, before filming The Shining, and he loved Eraserhead, and he was quite inspired by it. And uh, they they have this same vibe, the cinema of David Lynch, where there is just this weird, uncanny dread that you can't really explain why you're feeling it, but it's there, and and it is there from frame one of the shining from that helicopter shot while the credits are rolling 
you're scared and you don't know why, you know? Mm. It's one of those films that when it comes on, you're like, oh shit, now I'm up till three in the morning because I have to <laughs> keep watching it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, this, so The Shining scares you the most, more, more than any other the, uh, horror film, right? So I, I wonder, how did that fear manifest itself? Was it nightmares? Was it, what was it? Yeah, it was nightmares. It was, it was I mean, I guess I'm thinking initially about that initial dread. Like I've never had that heart-thumping I can't watch this anymore. I have to turn it off. It's the only time in my... And I know I, know I was young, but I, it's the only time in my whole life that I've had to turn a movie off because it was too scary. Um, mm. So it was, it was a genuine kind of fear that I was feeling at that time. And then, yeah, I could not sleep that night. I think I had nightmares for the next couple of nights. Um, yeah, and I'm not... And, you know, like, I could probably count on one hand um, the, the, the amount of horror movies that actually really scare me to my core in that way. So it doesn't happen to me very often. But, um, yeah, The Shining, for whatever reason... And obviously, I'm, you know, I've seen it a million times now, and, and it doesn't scare me in that same way, but it does still get me on some kind of fundamental level where there is just this vibe that just puts me on edge, makes me feel incredibly uneasy, you know? Yeah. Uh... I want to ask you something that's potentially quite an existential question. Mm. Um, as horror fans, yeah, do you think that we're constantly searching for that feeling again? And oh, yeah. if we were to encounter it, would how would that make you feel if if you had that same thing again? Would there be part of you that's like, finally, I found something that scratched that same itch? Or yes, absolutely. I think. I feel like we constantly chase that feeling as horror fans, right? That's what we want. That's the ideal. Like when I when I go to see a new film where there's been a lot of buzz, Hereditary spring, springs to mind. Like a lot of buzz about how you know this is one of the scariest movies of the last decade or whatever. It's, I'm so excited, and more often than not, sadly, the hype means that I don't find it as scary as I want to. But it not always. There have been movies, and there's one from a f- the, there's one this year actually and I'll talk about later that really really scared me to the point where I had to actually just go out and like have some fresh air and have a little walk afterwards uh, because oh, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't ready to just go straight to bed after watching it but it doesn't happen very very often and yeah like we for whatever reason we love that feeling as horror fans don't we I, I, I am always chasing that feeling yeah it is funny because on the as you say on the odd occasion that it, something does get under my skin like I'm lying in bed and I'm like, I, I recognise the feeling. I'm like, okay, I know, I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. My head's just full of fear of this thing. I'm just like, why do I enjoy this? You yeah. Know, why is it this that I want? You know, but it, it's 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 something knows? you can't explain to people who aren't horror fans, right? I've got a lot yeah. of people. I've got family, and even my wife actually is not particularly into horror. And I think a lot of people sort of say to me, "Why? Why do you enjoy mm. scaring yourself or putting you through putting yourself through that kind of feeling?" I don't know why. It's hard to explain, isn't it? I guess it's the same reason why people would want to bungee jump or whatever. It's like this kind of thrill that you get, this kind of catharsis that you get in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's... uh, I can't remember. Was it John Carpenter? Maybe it wasn't John Carpenter. said that horror films don't perpetuate fear. It sort of exercises it. Yeah. Like you say, the catharsis of it. Yeah. Perhaps I'm attributing that to the wrong person. I've heard Mark Kermode say it a lot. Um, I just can't <laughs> yeah. remember who actually said it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so The Shining is up there. So, so far we've got The Scream and The Shining, which already, that's quite a good double bill. <laughs> An amazing double bill, yeah. Okay. Question three. I'm wondering, Mike, 
I, I wonder if I might know what your answer is. I'm torn between two, but I'm going to ask you. I'm going to be fair. <laughs> try not to prejudge. Okay, so Mike, your third disc then. What's your favourite slasher movie? This is hard because there's a handful of movies, Scream included, that I would call my favourites of all time, and they are slashers. There's a movie that I often say is my favourite horror movie of all time, which a lot of people argue is a slasher. But actually, the film I'm going to say that is my favourite slasher is Black Christmas from 1974. Did you guess that? Called it. 100% called it. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, Mike, tell me all about Black Christmas, please. Black Christmas is a movie that I just... I can't get enough of like I think people must people who know me and who listen to me must be so bored of hearing me talk about Black Christmas but it is um it's a movie from 1974 it's this weird little Canadian movie directed by Bob Clark and it came four years earlier than Halloween the movie that often is considered the film that started the slasher genre the the subgenre um this movie did essentially all of the things that Halloween did in my opinion, it did them better, and it did them four years earlier. But this film just kind of went unnoticed for several years or several decades, in a way. But but it is this. It's, it sounds like your quintessential slasher setup. It is a bunch of sorority girls in this sorority house. The Christmas break uh, happened. They're at university over Christmas break. Everyone goes home except a handful of girls who remain in this sorority house. They start receiving menacing phone calls from this creepy guy with this very creepy voice, and then sooner or later they start getting picked off one by one and there is a killer hiding in the attic calling them spoiler alert from inside the house and uh this it it sounds completely textbook when you when you hear the plot synopsis right it sounds like a zillion other slasher movies but a this film did it first and b it's it's unbeaten in my opinion i think it, as well as having the, all the things you want from a slasher which is like great kind of fun teen characters and great fun dialogue and really cool kills a really interesting killer it also has this kind of creepy uncanny vibe as well the fact that it's set at christmas and all in this big sort of gothic sorority house it almost feels like a christmas ghost story mixed with a slasher like there is just a really fun spooky vibe to this movie um i love the characters you've got olivia hussey as the final girl but there's also margot kidder who's just steals the show as well pre lois lane and she plays barb one of the sorority girls and she's fantastic it has genuinely great characters it has kind of these characters have actual personalities and actual arcs so this is again something that you don't get through the sort of 80s slasher boom um and genuine scares and genuinely stunning and astonishing kills as well one in particular involving a glass unicorn which is just again one of my favorite ever kills in horror so i love this film i I can't say enough about it i absolutely love it well again this is this is one of those films that had i not been listening to the evolution of horror i would have slept on this but (laughs) it's again there's something almost dangerous about it yeah it's potency let me this is what occurs to me mike is that what black christmas has over quite a lot of slashes right Mm. it has a killer who is genuinely scary because realistically jason okay not that scary michael myers ugly maybe slightly more but not Mm. particularly a frightening figure in themselves but let me tell you when he's babbling away about what he's done previously or maybe he hasn't and this is just the ravings of a lunatic yeah 
Yep. Utterly unsettling and terrifying. Yeah, and I think the problem, you know, what you could argue is the downfall of the slasher. I mean, I love all slashers, but I think, you know, you could argue that the downfall of the slasher was all of the sequels and the, the repeats and the fact that when you get to six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies about Jason or Michael, you have to kind of keep adding backstory to them or adding personality to them. It ends up being a movie where you're almost cheering for Jason Voorhees and he's no like you say he's no longer scary he's now an action figure he's now a a, a lunchbox he's a t-shirt whereas this killer from black christmas is a complete mystery it's a he's a complete blank slate we never really see his face we never really find out anything about him we get like you say glimpses of this potential very creepy backstory about maybe he killed a baby and he puts on these different voices and but we never really know like you say whether that's just ramblings or whether that's genuine and yeah everything like they hold back just the right amount i think Mm -hmm. and uh it just everything works perfectly for that reason yeah you're you're 100 percent correct and and the the creeping shot of as she's walking in when she goes up to the attic to investigate and he's behind this little the plastic thing oh and you're just like you know something's coming oh. it just creeps forward and creeps forward and finally back gets it oh I honestly I, I'm such a, a huge advocate for that film stunning. as well stunning yeah I, I don't think it gets enough love no um, no and I, so, I, it's, and, and I think it's finally becoming one of those movies that is becoming mm. appreciated but it took a long time and obviously we've had a couple of remakes of Black Christmas trying to do different things with it ultimately not being completely successful in my opinion but but not, again it's it's something almost undescribable about this film it's a bit like what i was saying about the shining there is just this palpable tone and dread of this movie that is just stunning i think and it's mm. it's like this weird little oddity that that belongs in the mid 70s before the slasher was even a thing and i just absolutely love it yeah yeah Absolutely, and um, I think I speak for the both of us, Mike. If you haven't seen Black Christmas, oh my god, oh my god, go and watch it. Have the best time. It's, it's honestly incredible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Black Christmas is up on your shelf, Mike. So let's move on to your fourth disc. I'm intrigued by this one. Uh, what's your favourite ghost slash haunting horror? And I tried to keep it a little bit vague, but uh, but go on, hit us with it. This is the this is my least favourite question because it's the hardest <laughs> one. This was the hardest one of the whole lot for me because I love... It's probably my favourite subgenre is the kind of ghost haunted house. I love so many. I could I could easily just churn out a list of at least 10 that I would consider my favourites. Um, we've already mentioned The Shining and that that's a huge one for me. Um, but the one I went with is um, Jack Clayton's The Innocents from 1961. Um not the first time it's been mentioned on this podcast. Really? Well, there you go. You see, you've got you've got guests with taste because uh, you hear that, Brad? Oh, for fuck's sake! Was it Brad? In that case, cut that. I don't want him knowing that I complimented him. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the innocence is per- it's perfect. It's an absolute perfect film. The first time I ever saw this um, was relatively recently. Like I was an adult, and the BFI here in London did a gothic season. Uh, where they played loads of like classic gothic movies and I went to see it at the screen one at the BFI huge beautiful cinema and there is the first like one minute of this film it is just a black screen with a child singing they sing this song oh willow whaley and nothing you're seeing nothing on screen and the BFI turned out all of the lights and they even covered the fire exit 
lights on the door so we were sitting in complete darkness and all you can hear is this creepy child singing this song and and from that literally that first 30 seconds i was in love with this movie and this experience and uh yeah it's it's the story for people who don't know it, it it's uh, directed by jack clayton 1961 it's kind of a it's, a it's an adaptation of the turn of the screw so it's a very classic gothic ghost story um about this this woman played by deborah carr who is this governess who goes to this house bly manor um or bly house to uh look after these two children these two children are a bit weird and a bit creepy this house has this creepy history it's a bit sordid and weird and sexual and there are ghosts and people appearing in windows and people standing across lakes and it's it's everything i want in a ghost story it's low-key scares it's great Mm. characters it's creepy it's insidious there's a there's a darkness just bubbling under the surface but it's never really overtly there on screen it's it's a movie about repression and about secrets behind closed doors and people not saying what's really going on and everything is kind of very british and buttoned up and quiet but there is this really sinister undertone to it and i absolutely love it there is a there is a, absolutely an affinity with that sort of you know uh not quite stiff upper lip i don't suppose but that as you say the buttoned up the, the proper britishness that that lends itself so well to, to ghost stories and i think there's also a link there to why japanese ghost stories are potentially yeah. extremely effective too not yeah. to take it away too much from from the innocence but uh but that's as you say sort of repression and and that sort of thing yeah um are the best ghost stories about subtlety as well or can you have an overt scary ghost do you ever think ghost stories can go i i would say two ways and you you've got the one arm which is the innocence which i would i would if i was to be really reductive i would say it's it's the more british uh classic gothic ghost story vibe which is things are subtle things are unsaid things are sinister but not overtly scary and that they're jumping out at you every five seconds right and actually japanese horror is 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 exactly the same as that as well and then i would say you know again being a bit stereotypical but a wave of american ghost movies that that emerged from maybe around poltergeist and amateurville through to the movies of james wan uh, the conjuring insidious and these films are great fun they have a very different tone they are more like ghost train rides where you go in you're going to have the best time especially with an audience you're going to jump you're going to scream you're going to have ghosts and monsters and ghouls popping out of things grabbing people you know lots of loud noises and 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 they're equally as as valid and really really fun but i would say you know those ghost stories kind of fall into those two camps on the whole mm. and i personally am I'm, I'm more scared and put on edge by the more subtle insidious ones j-horror is a great example also spanish horror movies like the orphanage even the others which has a, a spanish director like those movies i think bring something extra that i really love in my ghost stories personally yeah a hundred percent yeah and i think i mean not to yeah not to, not to make the show not entirely all about you mike but my own <laughs> personal so for my film that scared me the most was indeed one of those british ghost stories so i was um in year eight so that's what, 13 years old i think and it was and this is the thing it was the last day of our summer term and my english teacher 
prided himself on never letting a class just watch a video for the last last day. Of yeah, term, right. So we will file in, and we're like, oh, we've got an actual lesson now. And he comes and goes, right, here's the telly. We go, oh, here we go. Yes. And then, to his thirteen-year-old audience, he puts on the nineteen eighty-nine Woman in Black. Oh, terrifying. So. To this day, Mike, and I'm 29 years of age currently, to this day, if I'm with my dad, round his house or whatever, and he goes, oh, just nip out to the garage or nip over, go and get the thing out of the garden, whatever, and it's dark, he will just lean over and just go, you know, she's still out there, don't you? <laughs> Because I had this thing for six months, that in the, the whole rest of that year was entirely ruined because and you know the moment i know, I know the moment you know the i know the moment <laughs> it is i funny enough i just spoke about that recently on my patreon we're doing like a big poll of everyone voted for their scariest uh, monsters in 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 horror and uh, the woman in black herself is like in that list quite high up and a lot of people talked about that particular moment in that version of the woman in black yeah just absolutely wonderful I was delighted to hear that I wasn't alone in that one mm. when I heard that episode. There is also a very curious... I cannot... I will find out after this podcast, and I'll, I'll put it in the notes or something. There is a film which is set in Asia, which is on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. which, shot for shot, does that jump scare. Interesting. Hello, Joe here, just interrupting my own podcast. The film that I couldn't remember the name of was called The Other Side of the Door. It's set in India and was directed by Johannes Roberts. It was bizarre. We were watching it with some friends. I, was like, I know exactly what's about to happen here. So anyway, we have digressed massively away from The Innocence and I'm going to come clean now. The reason for that is I've not seen it yet. Oh so- my God, oh my God. Well, you're in for such a treat, especially now that two of us have mentioned it, Joe. So you, you've got, to, you've got and- to watch it. Okay, so yeah, the uh, the Innocence Blu-ray is going on your shelf. What I've also done, Mike, is when I was, because I, I make all these Blu-rays myself, in, when I was copying them, what I'd managed to do was set up a very complex uh, computer program so that when you put this Blu-ray in, yeah. all your lights will go out for the duration of the child singing that song. Good, so, that is, uh, that's how everyone should watch it. And uh, Joe, I would like you to do the same, please, when you watch this film for the first time. I want photographic evidence of the room you're in and how there is not <laughs> a scrap of light there before the film well, starts, okay? That's going to be quite an easy photo to mock. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Okay, so The Innocent and it's a welcome edition there. Right, here we go. Your fifth disc. This actually doesn't have to take the form of a disc, this one. It can be a box set because the fifth edition to your shelf, Mike, is what's your favourite horror TV show? Uh, I, I mean, again, this is like, for anyone who knows me, I'm a bit obsessed with this show, but I'm, I'm going to go... Well, uh, this is really difficult. I'm torn between two here. But okay. the one I'm going to go for is the one that is slightly more pure horror, and that is The Haunting of Hill House uh, from Mike Flanagan. Um, oh, my heart. <laughs> because I don't think that horror as a television format really worked until The Haunting of Hill House. And I'm not talking about anthology. Obviously, anthology horror was very much a thing, you know, Twilight Zone and that kind of thing. But kind of um, long narrative uh, horror across multiple episodes, I had not really seen an example that worked. You know, I don't personally think that American Horror Story is successful in, in, in 
a single season you know like i think there is really interesting fun stuff that ryan murphy does in his shows but i think always by about episode five or six it starts to really lose its way and dip um and uh and it's a hard thing to do it's a really hard thing to do because horror is about that sustained tension and dread and high emotion and and it's and it has to have a kind of um uh, it has to have a kind of build up you know it has to have a kind of rhythm to it and i think that doesn't lend itself very well to episodic television but when i first so i so i went into the haunting of hill house pretty trepidatious actually because this is a, a you know yet another adaptation of uh the the classic shirley jackson story and i love the original film the haunting from 1963 it had a terrible remake in 1999 as well and i went into this like slightly trepidatious thinking okay what are they going to do with this how are they going to make this work across 10 episodes and i was just blown away by it i think that like it you know mike flanagan found the secret to creating a successful horror television show and now he does it like every year it feels like right but uh but yeah this um it has this real like mike flanagan is so brilliant at giving his horror a real emotional heart and it's really a drama about a family more than anything else peppered with some of the most terrifying uncanny scares i've ever seen in a tv show right and mike flanagan as everyone knows and there's been there were so many articles about this at the time but mike flanagan is the king of putting something very creepy in the back of a frame right and not really pointing a spotlight at it just letting you discover it in your own time so there are so many scenes and so many shots in the haunting of hill house where there will be some terrifying creepy presence just in the dark in the background and you may not even notice it you know and uh, there are so many scares that work that way there are also some brilliant jump scares in the haunting of hill house but so it has all of the scares it has the horror but actually it also just has this wonderful kind of emotional journey that these characters go on these siblings um in this story uh and there's an amazing episode midway through and it's like a single take thing like like i was just like blown away by almost every episode of this show so yeah it really sort of changed how i viewed horror in the television medium yeah 100 percent. it it changed it it changed a lot for me about storytelling and, and as you say that perception it's that it's the the sustaining mm. that absolute fear which it just it just gives you enough, doesn't it? I, I, I'm particularly reminded of the, the first episode when um, his dad comes in and he grabs Steve and he's like, we have to go now. Yes. They run out of the house. And is he, he's carrying him, is that right? And he just sees his mum mm-hmm. just running behind them. Mm-hmm. For, like, not even a frame. Yes, probably, but, yes, and it just, yes. It just... Yeah, it's like... It's like there's like Mike. It's like there's my life before Mike Flanagan, <laughs> and there's my life after Mike Flanagan. And and I yeah, I get I, I get that I get there are some criticisms towards Mike Flanagan, and it, it he 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 does dip into he goes he goes really far into sentimentality sometimes. And episode ten, the last episode, slightly lets it down for me. Slightly, it does go really far into schmaltz, and I think with Bly Manor he went further into that schmaltz but but when he gets that balance right of emotional heart genuine scares dread you know 
brilliant writing brilliant performances he is just the best he's one of our mm. best he's one of our horror masters he's like our new you know Wes Craven or John Carpenter I think you know he's he's brilliant at what he does I, I 100% echo that and when he does appear on this show and he will he will he will I'm I'm going to say much the same thing so can I, can we very very briefly if we we've talked about Hill House can we very briefly touch on Bly Manor and Midnight Mass then because I think um, Blind Manor. I mean, so I almost feel like they doubled down on the ghost in the background for Blind Manor to the point where there was the bit where I was like, "Is this him taking the piss?" Or, there's a shot in a very early episode where there's just a plague dog yes. just standing yes. in the corner. I'm like, yes, what are you doing? No, this. Is... But then I was like, "Oh, is he just taking the piss?" You know. But it, I mean, uh, yeah, it it it's true. It's like. The things it's almost like that classic sequel thing, isn't it? It's like the things that people talked about with Hill House, he sort of doubled down on in Bly Manor, mm. didn't he? Um I feel like it's the weaker of the two, but and I I making this point someone was chatting to the other day. Bad Mike Flanagan is still better than ninety percent of other T V shows. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, you know, going through my twenty nine years of life I've heard a lot of stories, I've watched a lot of films, read a lot of books, blah 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 blah. Midnight Mass comes out and it's taking me four or five run-throughs, but I think, Mike, it's my favourite story ever told. I think it's the best thing I've ever seen. I completely understand that people get turned off a bit by the characters monologuing <laughs> at each other. But when I, when I say to you Mike, that... Uh, I, I, I was discussing this with, with Becky and Brad, actually, but it's like Mike Flanagan reached into my head and my soul and he had a look at what was there Mm -hmm. and he saw some things that I thought about some stuff and he just went let me just take this out Mm -hmm. put it on that screen that one's for you it's unbelievable it's It's unbelievable and it's it's obviously that's his most personal you know piece that he's made it's the thing that he's been wanting to make for years it's I am I watched it once when it came out loved it and I'm currently like you say, I'm about to cover it in my vampire series on my podcast, so I am currently in the middle of a rewatch, and I'm up to episode three, and I forgot how brilliant this show is. Mm-hmm. Like the first episode, and you know, actually, I mentioned you know he's a bit like a he's a bit like a Wes Craven or a John Carpenter. Actually, who he is is he's our new Stephen King, right? Like I feel like everything he does feels like Stephen King, and obviously he has actually adapted Stephen King with Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep, but he 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 has created this like world with midnight mass with these brilliant characters this real sense of place this real beautiful pacing this feeling of dread this mystery this heart before it even gets to the crux of what the show actually is like you say which is vampires which is revealed about halfway through right it it, it, i think it's episode three that it 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 just take it takes it goes right we're going to do two episodes well, sorry, we're going to do three episodes. At the end of the third, that's when we show our hand. Yeah. And there are clues throughout. There's there's quite an overt clue, which is the, the first thing I was like, oh, hang on a minute, is this? Mm-hmm. No, it can't be. It's when Father Paul, he pulls the crate into his house. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't even need him banging on the wood and getting the knock back to know, okay, I, I have an idea, because it's a very clear Dracula yeah. thing. The other thing that didn't escape my notice is there is a shot when Riley goes back into his childhood bedroom 
on the shelf <laughs> there's a series of books and one of them is Salem's Lot yeah. and I just was like there is no way this is turning out to be what I want it to be yeah. and then it did <laughs> you're absolutely right he's our new Stephen King but he can stick a landing because the ending of Midnight Mass is just it's immaculate. it's his best ending definitely because like I said the one thing that lets uh, Hill House down is is the ending but um, he's the, the ending of this is absolutely astonishing well I'm very pleased that we managed to shoehorn Midnight Mass into because that is my plan for each episode Good. and I would say until I'm blue in the face it's the best thing I've ever seen I love I it care. and I just <laughs> want to quickly shout out the show that I am also obsessed with which is David Lynch's Twin Peaks Twin which Peaks. I think is the greatest yeah. thing ever made really but um, it, it is horror amongst so many other things amongst comedy soap opera cop show and you know like i, I for the for the purpose of this i wanted to talk about something that was just pure horror and did it successfully which is hill house yeah no i, I completely appreciate that that was a difficult one for you to not go with <laughs> twin peaks so I, I have a very strange relationship with david lynch it's like i feel like there's just a bit of my brain that's missing and i'm not clever enough to get what it's all about and that that's that's and that's a shame i, I, think, I get it point? I, no i totally get i get why you feel that way i think that um the thing about david lynch is that you do you shouldn't you shouldn't get it like i think you know you I, it's not that you're not clever enough to get it because nobody gets it nobody mm. i couldn't explain to you what is going on or what a lot of his films or tv shows are actually about but i think it's more about whether it hits you emotionally or viscerally it's kind of like what we said about the shining i think even if it doesn't make sense to you but the fact that you are engrossed and emotionally involved is what's important and if you're not you're not you know like i totally get why david lynch doesn't work on a lot of people for whatever reason it gets me more than any other filmmaker you know it, it's it's so frustrating because you know, two of my favourite film podcasts, yours obviously, and Handsome Brett Goldstein's. Mm. He is a huge David Lynch fan. I'm so I just wish I could get this. You know? <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to do then, Mike, in your box set of um, The Haunting of Hill House, what's going to happen is you're going to open it up, mm. and then on the inside there's a little insert, and it's the red curtain, it's the checkered floor, and it says, "If you like this, why not try Twin Peaks?" Just as a little nod to there you go. The fact there that you, you go. You honorable mention love it love it <laughs> okay your sixth disc then which horror movie has your favorite jump scare this was quite a hard one actually i really had to go through uh you know in my head some of my favorites and why um and jump scares are such a tricky thing you know sometimes they're great sometimes they're earned sometimes they feel cheap and annoying sometimes they work once and never work again and sometimes they work multiple times and this is the one for me which i keep thinking of that basically scares me every time i watch it um and this is dallas's death in alien ridley scott's alien from 1979 um, which is maybe not the scene that a lot of people think it might be from Alien. I'm not talking about the chest burster. I'm talking about the scene in the vent, <laughs> the, the scene with the little motion detector thing and uh, Dallas crawling around the vents. And it's, it's for me, and I actually made a, I made a video essay for the BBC about jump scares and about the art of the jump scare. And I think there's a, there's a lot of things that that make a successful jump scare i think it's about misdirection it's about surprise but i think ultimately it's also about the build-up um people often talk about the exorcist 3 as having the best ever jump scare and that i think works as well as it does because it's such a long build-up before you get to that scare right and uh and i think this 
is so genius because we sort of know what's happening. We can literally see on this little 80s computer device motion detector thing that this xenomorph is moving and it's moving towards Dallas and we know something bad is coming and it's cutting back and forth between him crawling through this really dark vent and then all of the people in the in the front of the ship kind of giving him commands and telling him to go the other way and then there's just this moment where it seems to be right on top of him but we can't see it he sticks his head up through a vent and there is that one of the first true glimpses we get of the fully grown xenomorph reaching out for him before the screen goes kind of fuzzy and uh, and everything cuts and it's just i think it's like that scene still makes me sweat watching it now and i think we it, it that the jump scare never feels cheap or predictable you know i think it works i think it's genius it does wrong foot you doesn't it a, a number of times but just oh what a what a fantastic what a masterful jump scare that one is so i, I have to ask you then mike have you played alien isolation have you experienced that yourself i have i have and it's horrible <laughs> isn't it <laughs> <laughs> that game is really horrible isn't it because you you can't do anything except hide like you can't actually like beat the alien like you just have to hide and stay as quiet as possible right and it's very tense the only thing i think you can do is you can sort of you know deter it at best yeah you just delay it for a few seconds and then you're away yeah but then it's chasing you again yeah it was it was a fantastic um realization of the of that universe that game actually really good really good alien isolation absolutely and 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 also because sadly you know after aliens that no one's ever really quite got that universe and that monster right you know and uh you know it just it just emphasizes again how good those first two movies are and particularly that original ridley scott's original which is like i know everyone says it but it is like a, a haunted house in space it's the nostromo as a ship is like a gothic mansion like i talked about in the innocence it's so shadowy and creepy and these corridors and these vents and you know the, they're being lit by torchlight in that scene and it's all just it's it's pure gothic horror but one that happens to take place in outer space you know and it's just yeah it's wonderful as a real sense of of place it's like because you know that it's like they've really really thought about okay what what is this piece of kit's actual function mm-hmm. you know, how does this work in this universe, yeah, you know, with them being free, things with the sleeping pods. It honestly, what uh, to be honest, what hasn't been said? I about know, Alien I know, at this point, but it's it's so effective even to this day. So, not the the chestburster scene. Just to touch on that, then not ruined for you by Spaceballs. <laughs> Thank God I had seen Alien before Spaceballs. Yeah, um, but no, it ha- you know like that. The, you know this is this is like the thing about people say about is Scream ruined by Scary Movie? It is if you let it. But I think you know it's I, I'm I'm very good at just completely losing myself in movies that are made as well as Alien. You know, and uh, yeah. that chestburster scene is still incredible. <laughs> fantastic okie dokie so alien with specific reference to dallas's death in the vent thank you very much okay now this one mike we come to my favorite question of all of the questions i'm going to ask you tonight Mm. which horror movie and this is deliberately vague which horror movie had the most emotional effect on you this is hard because there's been a couple of movies that like uh the one that really sprung to mind was um the orphanage which made me cry Mm -hmm. um 
And there are a couple of others like that that have very moving, even The Sixth Sense. There's a few ghost stories that really get to my, pull my heartstrings. We've talked about Mike Flanagan. That's made me cry before as well, The Haunting of Hill House. But the one that created the most emotional response where a little bit like when I was a kid watching The Shining, I thought, I don't know if I can handle even making it to the end of this film, is... Pascal Logier's Martyrs from 2008. <laughs> I, I had a, I had a feeling you were going to say Martyrs as you were building up. So, okay, so tell me, tell me about Martyrs. Martyrs is the most horrible film I've ever watched in my life. It remains to this day the most upsetting and disturbing and extreme movie I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of extreme movies at this point. You know, I've, me and Brad have you know we've literally done whole seasons on my podcast of watching all the most extreme movies whether it's you know cannibal holocaust or sallow or guinea pig and all of these things nothing affected me as emotionally in in you know as uh, martyrs it's 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 essentially what starts as a home invasion movie uh sort of um where a woman goes to this family's house to kill them because she thinks that they are responsible for her being kidnapped and tortured as a child. We don't know whether that's the case. And then the story kind of takes some twists and turns and we discover that she was right and that there is this torture dungeon underneath this house and they essentially kidnap and torture women and children and put them through put them through the most unspeakable pain and torture imaginable in order to create what they call martyrs which are people that see evidence of god or some kind of afterlife just before they die that's the story in a in a nutshell it doesn't really do it justice because the story is like this just gut-wrenchingly upsetting devastating experience where like by the last act of this movie i just think you just I, I've never seen such upsetting scenes of pain in my life and I think that's the thing it's it's not super extreme in the gore necessarily I mean there are really gory moments but I think it's it's a movie about pain and like there are actually very few horror films that are actually about pain you know and I think that makes me very upset and uneasy and it was an experience that I thought I, I, yeah, I came very close to being like, I don't think I can sit through another minute of this. And I made it to the end and I just sat there just speechless and kind of devastated and not knowing what to do next after it had, after it had finished, you know, um, it's a real gut wrenching movie. I'm, I'm going to have to explain to you my relationship with martyrs, mm-hmm. um, to have any sort of basis of, of, of conversation on it because it's, Obviously, when you, you realise that there is this thing that called horror that you're starting to think, this is, you know, a few years ago when I was a bit younger, you realise that there's this thing that people make films about horrible stuff happening to people. Yes. And it being quite entertaining. Yes, exactly. You therefore start out, I think, you know, maybe you start out with, you know, a scream. Uh, mm-hmm. let's say you start with Scream you go through all the slashes and then you start thinking okay well how far yeah. does this rabbit hole go you know and so that's that was my thinking when I bought the DVD of Martyrs and I think conservatively I'm going to say I bought the DVD of Martyrs in 2011 mm-hmm. so what two years after mm-hmm. it came out 
the DVD remains packed away in <laughs> my DVD wallet, which I'm ashamed to say I, I own, mm-hmm. um, rather than you know a, a lovely shelf like you're displaying behind you. Um, <laughs> and it has stayed there for the entire duration of my ownership of it. And it, it's to the point... Martyrs is very, very strange... Um, to me because it's the film that I've been most obsessed about that I haven't seen oh wow so you've you've actually not watched it at all okay not even once and I last year particularly actually earlier this year as well I got I get into like an annual obsession well maybe this is the year that I watch it and I was listening to I think it was your conversation was it with Stacey Ponder about it was it was about earlier this year and I've had that on repeat a couple of times to the point I've even looked it up on YouTube yeah. and watched clips with the sound off and I'm so I I've never had this sort of paralysis before yeah. of not even being able to bring myself to take the DVD out, you know. And to the point where I was I, I and this is just how my brain works, Mike, so I apologise, but I was thinking, what is the best day for me to watch this? If this is gonna be as arduous as I've heard it's gonna be what do I do? Like, what is the right point when I've had just a good enough day? Like, do you know what? I'm feeling <laughs> mentally strong enough to do it. And this is what I did, Mike. I got a digital copy and I took it on a tablet out on my honeymoon with me. What? To the Maldives. No, you and didn't. And I was sat on a beach and I was like, this would be where I'd watch it, and I still <laughs> didn't watch it. Okay, I'm kind of glad. I'm kind of glad you did. Oh, you, I mean, you you don't want to be watching Martyrs on your honeymoon. No, 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 but, no. But this is the thing. I was thinking, right, so this is the place where I've probably the most, um, yeah, not probably, the most amazing part of planet Earth I've ever seen with the person I love the most. This is amazing, because FYI, I'm going to the Maldives next month for my honeymoon. So, oh, cool. congratulations. Uh, you'll have to give me so some recommendations. Cool. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> Yeah, as well, with my wife, who I love more than anybody else, she's yeah. absolutely not going to be a part of this. She's going to be like having a cocktail, sunbathing, or something. I'll pop yeah. the earphones in. Just... And even then, I was like, I can't do this, you know. I cannot do this. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. No, I, I very much appreciate the, um, oh, the emotional impact. But do you know what, though? The problem is, is that actually you will watch it eventually and you'll go, oh, it wasn't actually that that bad. Yeah, Yeah. because because of the amount that people like me hype it up. And, you know, I I, I saw it in 2008 with zero expectations, except that it had got a lot of really good reviews and it was known as being quite extreme. And obviously at the time, around 2008, we were getting a lot of movies from people like Eli Roth and Rob Zombie and the Saw movies. So I kind of just thought it was going to be that. And it is not that. Mm. (laughs) It's... uh, you know, like, I think, you know, a lot of people have talked about, I think Wes Craven often talked about how horror is the most empathetic genre. It's 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 a genre that relies on you caring about the characters so that you care when they go through horrible stuff, like you said. And this movie, it does such an amazing job of making you care about these two girls at the centre of this story and then putting them through the most horrible things you can imagine being done to a human being. And it's just like you suddenly do say to yourself, why do I choose to watch films like this? You know? <laughs> yeah. So having said that, if I'd had the opportunity to just, <laughs> just to sit in the room where the writers were covered up with this sort of thing, I'd take that. <laughs> just yeah. see what got left. Okay. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. I have to ask you then, at the because don't get me wrong, I know everything that happens in Martyrs, I think. Um, <laughs> what do you think she says at the end to Mademoiselle? 
Oh, uh, I think I think she says there is there is nothing. I think nothing. she says yeah. Um, I think it has to be that. I think that's the only thing that really makes sense. Or she says something like you will never know or something like that but 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 my my sense is that she says there's nothing um which again just leaves you with it's just such a fucking bleak ending i mean different people interpret the ending in different ways some people <laughs> think of it as quite uplifting it depends how you read it um a lot of people say it's actually it, it's a very spiritual movie in a lot of ways i don't know i just thought it was so unbelievably upsetting i've watched it twice in my life <laughs> the first time i watched it and then I had to watch it again for my own podcast, and I may never watch it again. You know, it's a perfectly, it's perfect in what it sets out to do. It's a masterpiece, but it's almost too good a horror film. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> so what I'm going to do then, Mike, is the DVD that I'm going to give you of Martyrs to put on your shelf is actually my copy, a virgin copy that's mm. never been watched, mm. and it can remain that way if you yes. choose to. Yes, so. we'll seal it shut uh, <laughs> and just make sure it never gets watched. Perfect. Fantastic. Martyrs then. Okie dokie. Uh, what was your best experience with a horror film in the cinema? Um, this was. I had to really think about this. I've had so many fun experiences. I go to lots of f- festivals and I've seen a lot of amazing films. There's one film in particular from the last five years that is my favourite. But I'm going to talk about that later when you ask mm-hmm. me the final question. So I switched it. And I've gone with an experience of watching a movie that is very, very old. And I, and, and I saw it for the first time in a cinema. Um, and that is one of my favourite movies of all time, which is The Night of the Hunter from 1955, uh, which is uh, directed by Charles Lawton, the actor, and it was his directorial debut, and he never made another film again afterwards. He's one of these directors that was one and done, because this movie completely flopped. Nobody went to see it, everyone hated it, and it sort of disappeared into obscurity until it's now regarded as like one of the greatest films ever made you know and it is one of the greatest films ever made so this is a um a kind of um it's almost like a fable it's like a fairy tale it's a it's a story set in the deep south during the american depression um and it stars robert mitchum as harry powell this terrifying uh kind of preacher who is he poses as a preacher but he is a vile horrible murderous criminal essentially and he works his way into this family in order to steal their money the kids find him out and so he has to kill murder the children and then what progresses is the night of the hunter which is these kids go on the run from this boogeyman across the night uh across the uh, the deep, somewhere in the deep south and and are relentlessly pursued by this terrifying man so it's like a cat and mouse thriller it's almost a bit like a kind of michael myers-esque thing with this terrifying man kind of relentlessly coming after these two children so it's a really fun scary exciting horror film um but it's also just one of the most beautiful films ever made um have you seen this joe have you seen this one before i have and it's again i heard about it on evolution of horror mm. uh, and yeah, yeah, I, I did go and I think it was last year I, I, I watched it. Um, so yeah. Tell me more about it. So specifically in, in the cinema then, what happened in the surroundings? Was it just confluence of just, oh, this is fantastic? Or was there something that happened? Or? Yeah, no, I think it was just one of those experiences that, that gets you on such a kind of fundamental level where you just fall in love with cinema just purely by watching a film that is looks and sounds as good as this on the big screen and you know the cinematography in this film is just stunning it's one of those films where you could frame any shot and hang it on the wall and um the music's incredible the soundscape is incredible it relies a lot on music and hymns and 
again like nursery rhymes and things like that and there's this beautiful like dreamlike scene where these kids escape by jumping onto a riverboat and it gets very weird at this point and everything kind of slows down and the action slows down and this little girl in the in the boat um pearl she starts singing this song and all of a sudden like all the action stops just to see like shots of animals lit by moonlight as these kids kind of drift down this lazy river and it's very weird it's kind of eerie but it's like some of the most beautiful stuff i've ever seen and i think it was just that feeling of watching it for the first time in the cinema i was like this is one of the best things i have ever seen in my life like and again i i it's one of those movies i can't even explain why it's one of my all-time favorites but it just is and i think it partly it's due to the fact that i saw it in a cinema the first time i saw it and i was just so hypnotized by the images and the sounds in this movie you know i think it's just such a beautifully made film you know like that 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 term pure cinema gets kind of thrown around a lot but this to me is pure cinema it's just it's it's like visual um and audible storytelling storytelling at its best i think you know it's just yeah gorgeous and yeah so it's it's a it's a cinema experience i i've never forgotten and it's good to recognize those when when you have them because they are so few and far between yeah so yeah yeah definitely was it like then it's almost just reached across time and just affected you in a way? Because there, there's something about those kind of films where you watch... What, what year was it that this one came out again? I think it's 1955. 1955. Yeah. So, I mean, if you know you're going in to watch a film made in 1955, there's almost an expectation that mm, this won't quite grab me in the way that it would do when it was made. Yeah. And then when it does, it's oh so much more satisfying absolutely it's 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 actually it's exactly the same as what i described earlier when i said i saw the innocence in the bfi as well these two movies both mean a lot to me and they both have a similar vibe this stunning black and white kind of monochrome cinematography and both of them i watched in cinemas and it is something to do with yeah something to do with like you say going to watch a film that is that old and not expecting you, you know you're not necessarily expecting to completely lose yourself in it in the way that i did um with night of the hunter yeah you know people talk about you know citizen kane this is my citizen kane like i think that i think that the imagery in this film the camera techniques just the, the way it's technically made mm. is as good if not better than citizen kane you know i just uh, i think it's just wonderful fantastic okay so night of the hunter is your eighth for your shelf I'm going to stick you in the, the, the little sleeve as you open it up your cinema ticket's going to be in there as well from the from the night that you saw that for the first time lovely just as a little lovely little touch <laughs> perfect okay your ninth disc then uh, what's the most underrated horror film so I was going to say Lake Mungo <laughs> But I've changed it. I've changed it. I've swapped. I've swapped a couple of answers around because there were. There, I had multiple choices for various uh, questions here. I've gone with Wes Craven's *The People Under the Stairs*. Uh, so this is a film from I think 1991, and I've talked about Wes Craven already with *Scream*. He is one of my favourite horror directors, um, and uh, he's known, as we said, for making these huge tentpole movies. He did it three times. He did *Last House on the Left*, where he kind of established the 70s exploitation genre. 
in the 80s with Nightmare on Elm Street kind of establishing that huge uh, franchise and uh, sort of reigniting the slasher and then reigniting the slasher again in the mid-90s with Scream. But he did these other weird little films in between, whether it's, you know, The Serpent and the Rainbow or Shocker or some of these like very odd films that not many people went to see and not many people liked and um the people under the stairs for me is is not just the best of his kind of lesser known movies but i think it's just one of his best movies i think it is um so smart and ahead of its time brilliantly entertaining really funny really scary really disturbing and in all the in all the ways that wes craven is brilliant it's a horror movie that is about something socially and politically it taps into a lot of genuine fears and anxieties i think it's amazing anyway it's written and directed by him it's essentially the story it's almost like a a hansel and gretel type story really it's a, a boy who lives in the ghetto who has to go and rob um uh, an evil rich couple who live in this huge house who are basically like sucking money away from the community and he sneaks into this house to burgle it and then it turns out this this couple that own this house are a lot more evil than he was expecting and not only do they take money from uh people that need it but they also kidnap children and hide them in the basement and there are all these creepy children and people under the stairs and we end up in this this whole film that takes place in this house, this unspeakable house of horrors that has like booby traps and passageways and hidden dungeons and monsters and killer dogs and all of this other stuff. And not to mention these two terrifying uh, homicidal maniacs that own the house played by uh, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby. And uh, yeah, the whole film is then basically just escaping from this house, right? And uh, I just love it. I think it's just one of the most fun movies that um Wes Craven made it's hilarious but it's also really frightening it's exciting and it and it has a lot of really interesting social commentary behind it as well I know it's one of Jordan Peele's favorite horror movies as well growing up um has this African-American lead this boy um and it just just a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily expect from a horror movie made in the early 90s it's it really taps into that sort of kids imagination as well yeah. i feel like it's like the number of times you know i was mucking around when i was a kid and i just imagine oh what if this door just opened up and there was just you know this other, yeah. this whole other world just, that i just didn't anticipate and yeah it doesn't surprise me to hear that it was one of jordan peele's favorites at all i mean you look at you know but particularly us i imagine uh, the influence that Wes Craven had on that film in particular, mm-hmm. in so much as I think in the first shot you've got there's a, a copy of one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets I think, and it, you know going down into sort of boiler rooms and, and industrial looking things as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic shout for most underrated because yeah, but entertaining is the other word that I really that really resonated with me it's it's quite a lot of fun it's so yeah. much fun it's silly it and it it's a weird mix of genres because it does almost feel like a kids movie at times it does almost feel like you're watching home alone with with you know a kid <laughs> running from these burglars and setting booby traps like it actually feels like you're watching that movie sometimes mixed in with really disturbing like kidnapping and child torture and and again Wes Craven 
His films aren't necessarily as slick as somebody like John Carpenter, but I love that he always took swings. He Mm. did different things, different decades throughout his career, and he always made films that were about something. He wasn't just interested in horror for horror's sake, you know? Like, obviously, famously, he made films like Last House on the Left as a response to kind of Vietnam War and Vietnam War footage, and he made A Nightmare on Elm Street because it was like real stories of children dying in their sleep, and that really freaked him out. And, And he made... He made the people under the stairs because supposedly there was a real news story that he had read uh, about two African American burglars who were uh, who were about to force entry into this very white affluent neighborhood. All of the neighbors saw these two black people come towards this house, so they called the police instantly. The two guys ran away, and when the police came into this house, they then act just on the, at random discovered that this house happened to be owned by two people that had kidnapped a child and was keeping them in their basement and this story had like gone over in his head over and over and it, and it became this kind of class story this race story of 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 white people in these affluent areas getting away with unspeakable things mm. on the fringes of these poor deprived areas you know and there's yeah i think there's just there's so much brilliant smart stuff going on in the middle of this really silly bonkers <laughs> film you know but why not you know why, yeah why not put those messages in yeah absolutely so good <laughs> so good I didn't know that story that it was based on a real thing though and as you were telling it I was like oh no I really hope this doesn't end how I think it does but it was fine (laughs) it was fine it was fine yeah okay so the the people under the stairs again would you like me to put a little advert sleeve into into the DVD cover for Lake Mungo as endorsed by Brad Hansen yeah, and yeah yeah we've, we've got to we've got to we've got to stick Lake Mungo in there too because <laughs> but but like Brad said it it's less and less underrated these days you know I think it's it's rated <laughs> yeah it's it's getting what it deserves now because yeah. it's it's a phenomenal film that one, yeah so great okay so your 10th your 10th disc I'm slightly nervous to ask you about this one because I have a suspicion of what it may be and I don't want to know anything about it but... yeah I'll stay spoiler free on this I will stay spoiler okay. free on this because it's so then, recent then I think I might know what you may say what is the last what's the last film which scared you Mike so I only saw it about three months ago I think it came to Shudder I watched it at home it's a movie called Speak No Evil um, is that the film you thought I was going to say it's, or is that a different it's... one it's not the film I thought you were going to say, and I have seen Speak No Evil, so okay. let's just go for it. Well, I I almost still don't want to say too much in case people <laughs> listening haven't seen it, but it, um, this this movie gave me the same sort of feeling as Martyrs gave me. Not quite as strong as that, but almost. Um, I love a movie that is about social awkwardness. Like, it's becoming slowly like my new favourite type of horror movie. Films <laughs> like The Invitation, uh, Get Out has an element of this too, but like people put together in a house and something weird is happening and people are sat around a dinner table or they're at a party and something sinister is going on and it and you know creep is an amazing one like this as well and you don't quite know where or why something bad is brewing but something bad is brewing right and and this movie is just the ultimate kind of social awkwardness horror movie so it's essentially the story of two couples uh, they meet on holiday in Tuscany and you know when you meet other couples on holiday you're kind of you get on at the time you make friends you might go for drinks together you might hang out by the pool whatever but then the holiday's over and you're done but after this holiday finishes one couple who live in a complete completely different country to the other couple uh, they write to them and they go we had such a great time with you come and stay with us at our weird little remote cottage in I think Holland 
And so this other couple who live in Denmark decide to do it and they travel to Holland to stay with this couple that they barely know and things go really badly, essentially. And it is like this slow burn, dread-inducing, excruciatingly awkward, like I want to cringe myself inside out, uh, horror movie that does actually become a real horror movie as well. But um, it's not just the, hor- the horror, it's, it's everything else in this movie that I loved and and that really scared me you know like scared me not in a way that jump scares scare me but in a way that i was like oh my god i can't take another minute of this it's so unbelievably awkward and dark and dread inducing you know um i just loved this movie it it, socially awkward horror is a perfect (laughs) perfect description of it but uh, i remember when um uh, there was a, a Danish movie. Was it Thomas Winterberg? Uh, Another mm-hmm. round. The yeah, movie. yeah. I remember on the film. the press tour of that one, there was a conversation had that he strongly believed that the people who would relate to that film better or to the same extent that Danish people would would be the Brits because there is a. There's an underlying sense with British people and Danish people that there is a, a sort of a buttoned-up front mm-hmm. which is paper-thin mm-hmm. and underneath that, everybody just goes absolutely bonkers. Absolutely. I, I think that, again, is demonstrated with Speak No Evil because you're absolutely right. I remember when I saw it, I was like, oh, you know, I was hearing a lot of buzz and I thought, okay, well, it's just come to Shudder. I've got a... a afternoon free i'll check it out and by the time it finished i was just so sad so sad <laughs> so sad uh yes like, but it's just and each it builds so as you said it's a slow burn but each scenario where they like they need to have a, a not necessarily a confrontation but anything that necessitates a conversation about it it every single one goes as badly as that conversation could have gone yes and it is horrific and and you know horror so often is about characters doing stupid things and you shout at your tv and you say don't go back into the house don't do this don't do that and often if it's done badly it can almost it can almost draw you out of the movie because you're like Mm. these characters being so unbelievably stupid i almost want them to die now in this movie characters do unbelievably stupid things but I believed it and there's a bit of me watching some because it basically all comes down to these characters being so polite that they can't say no to anything and I was thinking to myself is this exactly how I would be in this situation like I would I would be so worried about confrontations that I'd probably have just gone along with all the things that these characters do and I'd have probably ended up in the same situation as them by the end Oh no! Because oh, I, no, I have that British, I have that British. You know, let's keep everything civil and polite, and uh, and not ruffle any feathers about me <laughs> to the point where that would be my downfall. I think. But that's the thing: the writing is so good, the performances are so mm. good that even though there are moments when you are wanting to yell at your TV, it is still believable. It still feels hideously real, and then it wallops you with some of the most upsetting horror i've seen in a very long time by the end you know and it really affected me the way this Mm. movie ended and that like i said earlier like i actually had to just go off by myself and have a little wander outside 
this was like midnight uh, before going to bed because I was not ready to just go straight to bed after watching this movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. I had a very very similar response at the end. I was <laughs> my wife came back because she was she'd been out. She came in and she was like, Are "You okay?" And I was like. No, everything's just a bit shit. <laughs> <laughs> everything's awful. Yeah. But also, yeah. hard cut to half an hour before when I'd jumped off the sofa and I was screaming at the telly, you don't need the bunny. <laughs> oh, honestly, yeah, that's the thing. It is such a good film because you, you, you become so involved, you get so frustrated, you get so angry, and then you get so scared and so upset. And it's just like, it really took me on a roller coaster of all those emotions. And it's funny. I laughed a lot too. Like, it's just brilliant. I loved it. Mm. Yeah. It, it was incredibly affecting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Speak no evil then. That's your 10th disc up there. Love it. Um, and I'll tell you what, Mike, what I'm going to do. Uh, Inside, I've slipped something inside the DVD case of this one uh, that you're not going to know about until you go to watch it again. Ooh, but okay. when you go on your honeymoon to the Maldives imminently, <laughs> there's just going to be a little passive-aggressive note from someone you meet out there. I'll, I'll leave it at that. You, when it happens, you'll know who it's going to be from. Perfect. So. I can't wait. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The 11th disc, then. What's the best death or kill you've ever seen in a horror movie? I, I had to think about this again because, like, my oh, my first thought was something like a Final Destination film where you get these awesome, really fun, elaborate kills. But I, the one that then also sprung to mind was the death that really shocked me and I haven't stopped thinking about since, which is, spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't seen this film, but it's from Hereditary. And it is the death of little Charlie in Hereditary. Purely because... I've never been so shocked by a character's death in my whole life as I was by this film. I saw Hereditary at a very early press screening before there was, like, before anyone I knew had seen it and before there was much hype. And I'd seen, I think, a, a, a couple of still images and a brief plot synopsis. And I thought I was going to watch a ghost story about this little girl called Charlie who was speaking to her dead grandmother. Because that is how the film is set up, right? She's a bit creepy. She's killing pigeons. She's doing all kinds of weird things. She's going to start talking to dead people and drawing crayon drawings like all kids do in ghost movies, right? No, 30 minutes into this film, she, she's decapitated. and <laughs> And like... And that's what audiences must have felt like in 1960 when Janet Lee died in Psycho, right? Where suddenly I was, I, I gasped and I fell back into my seat when this moment happened. And I just could not believe what I had just seen. How visceral it was, how emotional it was. The fact that you see the severed head with flies and spiders crawling all over it the next day. Uh, it's, 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 it's one of the most shocking, like, brave provocative things i've seen in a recent horror movie you know and then from that moment onwards i was like in the palm of ari aster's hand because i had absolutely no idea what this movie was and where it was going from that point onwards and i would have had no idea that it ended the way it did in its final <laughs> act it really takes you on a journey hereditary right and and it is as scary and upsetting as people say and again i am all for a movie that gets me emotionally as much as you know viscerally and this is a movie where you feel that death i mean it is a movie about grief essentially so you know it is the, the, that is the central set piece almost of the movie it's the thing that sparks everything that happens afterwards this incredibly shocking and sort of matter of fact death scene in this horror movie uh yeah i loved it it was a game changer for me it's 
it's also it's not just the initial impact it's the following shot which oh. goes on for seven days i think <laughs> roughly yes of him yes. just realizing what's just happened and it instantly it, it took me back to points in my life where i've gone you can never not have just done that no like, there's there's nothing you can do that will always have happened exactly it's, yeah it's an astonishing it's such a confident debut oh, unbelievable unbelievable like, right this is where we're going and then to continually wrong foot you it goes you think you're watching this no no it's this mm. okay cool no no it's not that it's now this thing we're mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. there's a there's almost a sniffiness to it from some some circles i think but it just i think it's it's so effective it's and and to to link back to what we were saying about um Mike Flanagan and having things hidden within plain sight, you know what I'm talking about. When realizing at different points to your fellow audience members where she is. The kind of tidal wave of gasps at different points in the cinema. Phenomenal. I've never experienced anything like that before or since. No, no, it's a it's it's honestly like there's nothing more exciting than going to see a film where you have no idea where it's taking you from one scene to the next and yet it still works it never feels cheap and you're emotionally involved and hereditary does all of those things it's a masterpiece i've only seen it the once i've never gone back to it a second time and yet it has stuck with me so vividly ever since whenever it was 2018 yeah Mm. i I would be really interested to hear what you thought on a second viewing because the second time around i was watching it was like this is a comedy yeah yeah it's really funny when you watch it the second time (laughs) i can imagine that because also midsummer was that too it was very funny on top of being very dark Mm. you know and um ariaster very smart the way he weaves humor it's 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 everything about the human condition right it's absurd it's funny it's tragic it's scary it's weird it's uncomfortable he gives you all of that in hereditary i think Mm. yeah phenomenal um I mean, we, we've talked about it, so I'm going to have to ask you now. Can I do my awful joke about this film, please? Is it hereditary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your joke there. That was Mark Kermode said that to me on on my podcast. Actually, he made that joke. That was how I first heard it. <laughs> oh really? Oh, perhaps that's where I picked it up then. Oh no! <laughs> there you go. I've just stolen a joke. You're quoting Mark my Kermode. own podcast back at me. I love it. Well, well, I mean, I feel I've been doing that quite a lot tonight, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, hello to Jason Isaacs. Um, <laughs> Okay, great. Hereditary's going up there. Would you like him in the same vein that Becky had? Would you like a, a Charlie special head DVD case where you boop the nose and she just spits the disc out? Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, a little, little severed head. Yeah. Uh, with or without assorted insects and arachnids? I, I would like the insects, please. Okay. Yeah, I'd like the insects. Sure. sure. Smash it. <laughs> uh, just a special head case. Not you. Uh... <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your penultimate disc then. One film from your favourite horror director, please, Mike. So I, I, I have a couple. It's hard to pick. Wes Craven is one of them, but I've talked about Wes Craven a lot already. So I am going to flip to my other favourite director, which is David Lynch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people argue David Lynch doesn't do horror. I would argue that everything he's ever done has been horror. Everything he's ever made has scared me in one way or another. So I am going with... Um, 
I could pick any David Lynch film, really, but I'm going to just pick Blue Velvet because I think it's maybe the most quintessential David Lynch film. It's the most accessible David Lynch film and maybe the most scary as well in the more traditional sense. Um, Blue Velvet, a classic film from the mid-80s about this little suburban neighbourhood. It has that iconic opening where Blue Velvet is playing and all these people are waving to each other on the, from their garden lawns and it's all like happy suburban heaven. The camera then sinks down under the grass and there are all of these like horrible black bugs eating each other and all the sound becomes distorted and everything turns dark. And essentially that's what the story is in a nutshell. It is about the dark side of suburbia. Karl McLaughlin's character finds a severed ear he investigates it and finds out that it belonged to somebody that lived in this apartment he goes and sneaks into this apartment hides in the cupboard and he sees unspeakable things happen to this woman played by Isabella Rossellini um, by this man called Frank played by Dennis Hopper one of the scariest characters in cinema history and the film just gets more weird and twisted and fucked up from there basically so I, I recognise that earlier in this conversation I said I don't really get David Lynch. I forgot Blue Velvet exists. Mm. So, as you say, the most accessible, I got Blue Velvet. That's the one yeah. David Lynch that actually, do you know what, that did make sense. And you're you're absolutely right. It's one of the best openings to a film it's phenomenal it, and, and i always say i always say to people about david lynch it's 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 blue velvet is the entry point to david lynch i would say blue velvet or twin peaks and they both have this same idea that it's this idyllic picturesque town where a murder has happened and it's all about looking behind the curtain of what looks attractive but is actually something really evil and hellish going on under the surface and actually when you watch all of his other films Mulholland Drive Lost Highway they all have that element to them of of peeking back the red curtain at the hell that lies behind mm. the the white picket fence you know absolutely yeah and and Frank is just such a weird I mean it's, oh. probably, it's an overused word for David Lynch but he's such a weird character <laughs> it's re- just really on that mask and screaming oh. he's like a caricature he's very over the top and Dennis Hopper plays him very over the top but it works it's very scary and there's a, a there's a really scary sequence in the middle where Karl McLaughlin's character gets kidnapped by Dennis Hopper and it's so weird and you don't understand what you're watching it's like something out of a nightmare he takes him to this weird I think brothel and this pimp comes out and he starts like miming to Roy Orbison and then they start hitting Karl McLaughlin and there are these like sex workers dancing on a table and you're like I don't know what I'm like it feels like I'm in a fever dream and it's horrible and it's terrifying and it's upsetting and I don't know what's happening <laughs> like that's that's that sums up David Lynch in a nutshell as well doesn't it I think gonna say when they do when they do another box set of his mic that's your quote going <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible and I don't know what's happening but I love it uh, <laughs> fantastic okay blue velvet um do you want novelty severed ear to come with that? I'd love a severed ear with that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it can be, the box could be like a little uh, cupboard, you know, that you could peek through or something like that. You know, <laughs> lovely. Lovely, lovely. Okie dokie. So, Blue Velvet. Okay, we come to your final disc, Mike. This is the last one. What's your favourite horror movie from the last five years? Um, I think I've just made it because it was 2017, so we're just within the five-year bracket. Um, it's Jordan Peele's Get Out. 
which you know is a perfect 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 film i think it's not just the best film of the last five years it's the best film of the last decade maybe the best horror film of the 21st century like i i I first saw it again i almost said this was one of my favorite cinema experiences i saw it in the cinema at a press screening it was the most raucous press screening i've ever seen people were cheering laughing gasping shouting stuff at the tv at the cinema screen and then i watched it again and i enjoyed it even more i watched it again and again and the more i watch it the more I love and appreciate about this movie and what really annoys me is when people say that it's a bit obvious or a bit basic because the thing about this film is that yes it's very easy to 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 enjoy it on a very surface level it's very entertaining it's laugh out loud funny it's got jump scares it's exciting but also there's just so much wonderful beautiful nuance of human dynamics and race relations and politics and everything else that is woven into every single line every single word of dialogue in this movie you know and the performances i could go on and on i mean daniel kaluuya is one of the best actors of the last decade i think like uh i was talking about this with becky dark earlier we were talking about nope as well and just he does so much with so little um there's so much about his acting in Get Out and he was nominated for an Oscar for Get Out he should have won uh, he he has a very hard job as an actor which is just reacting to what's going on around him and often not saying much he, he does so much acting in his eyes in his face there's this wonderful thing in Get Out where characters like him and the other black characters in the film are doing like two different things or three different things at the same time with their face there's like you know a character is laughing and shaking her head and going no 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 while her eyes are screaming help right and tears are streaming down her face and like there are that's and that's the genius of this film is that within every line of dialogue within every performance there are two or three things happening all at once you know Mm -hmm. and um i love that about it i i think you're absolutely right and and your observation that people say oh you know it's a bit, a bit basic or anything i feel like they might have sort of missed the point yeah i think because i have had proper full-on like not quite panic attacks but i just think about get out and i think about the duality or something you know triple meanings of as you say mm-hmm. each line and I, I just stop and i think i don't understand how that came to be how mm. every single aspect of it has got layers and layers and layers of meaning into it it gives me a headache yeah. worrying about it, it it's it's the most rich profound movie wrapped up in the most fun crowd-pleasing thrill ride you know and to me that is all the best things a film can possibly do like it doesn't get any better than that you know i think ultimately you can make the smartest film in the world but if it's really stuffy and inaccessible it doesn't work but a film like get out ticks every single box it's you know because i've seen it with other people i've never met a person that didn't have fun watching it on first watch you know it's 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 just the most thrilling fun movie that also just happens to be a masterpiece and is extremely important it's the most mm. uh you know the most important film of our time it, it kind of sums up everything that's been going on in america across the last decade right but it's also it's also kind of the movie that sparked this new golden era of horror that we're in which you know movies like hereditary and movies by whoever else robert eggers mike flanagan you know i feel like they've all got jordan peele to thank for this you know mm. And I think there's 
there's something to be said for people who really, really understand comedy mm-hmm. seem to really, really understand horror because yes. they're very much two sides of the same coin. Of the, you know, if you were to take a, the, the idea of a jump scare and a joke, it's the same thing. It's just a different reaction. Yeah, yeah. But even if you were to just examine one aspect of Get Out, if you were just to look at the imagery, right? Just mm. the image. If you watch that, just the images alone. The image of Chris, is, uh, uh, the visual metaphors are so perfect. He picks cotton, yes, yes, out of the chair. It's every moment like that. It's every moment like that. Like there's nothing in this film that, like you say, doesn't have several different connotations or subtexts to it. It's so clever, and whether you get that or not, it still works in the drama that you're watching. You know, there's never anything where it's like oh, they're trying so hard to put something subtexty in there that it doesn't make sense to the story. Mm. Everything works so neatly. It's almost too perfect, this film. You know, it's unbelievable. You know, I've, I've just figured out who Jordan Peele is. You know who Jordan Peele is? Who's Jordan Peele? <laughs> he is Stanley Kubrick, if Kubrick understood humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's Kubrick <laughs> with warmth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. And actually, I've often thought of him as a bit of a Wes Craven, too. Again, like I talked about with the people under the stairs, but Wes Craven making fun, silly horror movies but that were about Mm. something as well. And I feel like Jordan Peele has that same vibe about him. Like, first and foremost, he wants to entertain us, you know, with Us and with Nope. These films are really fun, crowd-pleasing movies, but they've got so much interesting stuff to explore and say, you know. Um, And then, again, like as if it couldn't get any better but the ending of get out again is the most perfect ending i've ever seen to a horror movie you know that from the moment that those sirens those blue lights appear and everyone collectively and i never forget it in the cinema everyone collectively froze and it was like we all knew where that was going and then he switches it and gives you the most satisfying ending imaginable but not without dropping that moment in Mm -hmm. that makes you realize like he still says it without saying it right he still says oh my god if the police turn up he's screwed because he's a black man but then he he gives us the satisfying blockbuster ending as well so he he does two things at once again you know and it's just perfect you come out of that movie thinking about everything you've just watched and you think about the world you think about people you think about race but you've also just had the most fun experience you're likely to have you know I remember at the time, or shortly after it came out, and I, I may get this slightly wrong, but I, I think I attribute it to Nish Kumar made mm. the point. He was, he, I think it might have even been Brett Goldstein's podcast. He was speaking, you know, they were talking about the best films of the year, and he mentions Get Out, and he says, if at the point of Get Out, when those sirens go off, your reaction is, ah, oh, shit you are complicit in the knowledge of institutionalised racism. Yes. Even if you're not fully conscious of that fact. Exactly. You've completely understood that actually those those sirens, which in hundreds, thousands of action movies denote the good guys, if your reaction isn't... <gasps> yeah. Then you've completely missed the point. It's... And, yeah. That's so true. That's so true, and and he and, and it's so subtle. It's I don't think you even see the lights initially up 
like you don't see them overtly you see them reflected on the faces of daniel kaluuya and the woman the woman that he's just killed in the road right and you know instantly what that means and like i say that the audience that i was in raucous audience went completely silent in that moment and everyone collectively knew what that meant like you said you know you know what that means even without jordan peele then having to actually give us it and then he subverts that by having his best friend get out of the car and suddenly the audience i was in erupted into applause (laughs) and cheers and laughter and you leave on a high it's just incredible you know absolutely and they they could have gone the way of Night of the Living Dead. and I think they yeah. even shot it, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, apparently that... Yeah, in fact, I've seen it. They're on the DVD, you can watch that alternate ending, but Jordan Peele decided to, yeah, to go with the other one. I'm so I glad th- he did. I, me too. I think it's... Yeah, it, the right choice, 100% for that one. Uh, it's... Like, yeah, I mean, it's perfect. You're absolutely right, it is perfect. One final anecdote about Get Out, then, because... Yeah. I can't explain how angry this made me right? <laughs> yeah so we were watching get it was a, a scream unseen thing that the Odeon do they're like mm-hmm. you pay like i think it was like three five quid or something they don't tell you what horror movie you're watching but it's a new one and so we we bought the tickets and we were like oh really hope it get out because i'm hearing yeah amazing things about it title card comes up get out audience goes yes <laughs> yeah. we get all the way through the film to the point where there's the scene of brain surgery right Mm -hmm. so just as the first incision is made and the stuff starts coming out and the brains are starting to happen all the (laughs) horrible funky shit is happening these two people in front of me just started snogging what and i actually like shouted and was like what at this fucking (laughs) that is inappropriate goodness sake i get annoys me the worst do you know what the worst part about going to the cinema is is having to endure a film with other people who don't respect the film that's the the most anxious i get is (laughs) a airports b when i'm in the cinema and i'm like you all understand what's going to happen if you misbehave (laughs) don't get me wrong I will fucking stand up and I will come over to you and I will tell you to shut up. Yeah. I'm not afraid. I, I channel my inner Gav Murphy and just go, because he is a, a stalwart defender. He really in the is. Cinema. He really is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just say, oi, shut the fuck up. Yeah. yeah. There was something <laughs> Becky and I chatted about, actually. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Mike, this has been such a treat, such a joy for me. What I'm going to do now um, is I'm going to read you back your. Your very own spooky shelf, which I'll leave your father-in-law to help you put up. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Maybe my father-in-law can pop round and just, you know... Yeah, perfect, perfect. So your spooky shelf goes in this order. Scream, The Shining, Black Christmas, The Innocence, uh, to which I have put in a very complicated program which fiddles with your lights and turns all the lights out. Thank when you. you. Thank you. <clears throat> the Haunting of Hill House, which has a little advert for Twin Peaks on the inside of the, co- the case. Alien, with particular reference to Dallas's death. Uh, my untouched copy of <laughs> Martyrs, so it may never be watched again. Good, good. <laughs> the Night of the Hunter. The People Under the Stairs. Speak No Evil. Hereditary, which comes with novelty Charlie special head case where you boop the nose and good. spits the disc. Good. Blue Velvet and Get 
out. Are you happy with your spooky shelf? I'm so happy with that. I I am so proud of my own list there. That's that's an incredible <laughs> shelf. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I happily watch all of those. All <laughs> Except for Martyrs, Maybe, right? Apart from Martyrs. Obviously, obviously. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, at the risk of sounding very much like Mike Munzer, Mike Munzer, mm. where can people keep up to date with uh, all of your doings and goings on? Uh, yeah, so I've got a podcast called The Evolution of Horror, which you can find on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to follow us on Twitter for news of everything else we do, because we do screening events and quizzes and various other things online uh just follow us on twitter as as long as twitter still exists we're on twitter <laughs> at evolution pod fantastic mike monster thank you so much for coming down and building your very own spooky shelf thank you so much for having me well there you go that was mike monster putting up his own spooky shelf well rather it's there's our fathers-in-law putting up the shelves and Mike and I standing around having a cup of tea and nodding approvingly while not really understanding how the shelf is staying adhered to the wall. (laughs) Uh, Recording with Mike was, as I said in the intro, an absolute dream and he really, really came with some incredible answers. I I had an amazing time recording that one. Remember to subscribe to The Spooky Shelf wherever you get your pods. You can find me at Spooky Shelf Podcast on Instagram or at Joe DeCaro, but, you know, it's a Belgian name, it's difficult to spell. Next week, I have another incredible guest coming on to put up their very own spooky shelf, so keep your eyes out for that one. Thanks go to Cosmin Itchin for creating incredible artwork for this podcast and to Lucy Lane for general podcast advice. And again, especially after this one, to Raul Coley and Mike Flanagan, who one day will be coming along to record their very own spooky shelves. (laughs) I'll be back next week with another big old spooky shelf. Have a smashing week, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.